Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-361 of the Run Run Live podcast. Chris here, and I'm testing out a new recording space. It's got a lot of hard surfaces, so it might be a tad echoey. I'm testing it out. I'm going to hang up a couple quilts in here and see if that softens it up. We call them quilts now, right? But didn't they used to be called tapestries? I guess when you hang them up, they become tapestries. Anyway, today we are interviewing. We are having an interesting chat with Jeff from Zealous Beer, who I reached out to because they were apparently targeting endurance athletes. And I always wondered about this connection between beer and running. And it being St. Patty's Day today and all, well, it just seems sort of appropriate, doesn't it? Yeah. In section one, I'm going to dust off an old post that I wrote on trail running. Why? Why? Because I've had this rash of spam on my website, and all of them are putting comments on this trail running post. So I took it as a sign. I'm going to read it to you. In section two, I'll share a post on grit that I wrote a couple of weeks back. It's been a crazy couple of weeks. My training has been deep into the dark place, and the weather hasn't been cooperating. It's been cold on the weekends for my long runs, and Coach has been kicking the crap out of me. For example, he's given me a couple typically midweek 12 to 14 mile tempo runs that are just crazy hard outside in the freezing cold. <laughs> I'm basically doing three hard workouts a week. If I if it hadn't been for the blizzard this week, I would have got five runs in and would have been well over a 50-mile week for me. I did a 14-mile run with 10 of those at tempo two Sundays ago, and it was 10 degrees out with a 14-mile-an-hour wind. <laughs> and I did another interval workout one night where I got all the weather in one workout it started with wind, freezing rain, then it got cold, it started blowing snow, and this was all in the same hour I was doing the workout. So I got all the seasons, one workout. That's New England for you. Then last Sunday I did a 
two-hour and 45-minute long run with an hour of tempo in it. Yeah. Again, in the teens with the wind. And it's hard to get mentally geared up for these hard workouts when you've also got the weather, you know, piling on that you have to deal with. But it's okay. These are the workouts that make you stronger. They make you mentally stronger and physically stronger. One of the things that Angela Duckworth, the grit lady, talks about in the grit book is the question, how do you get more grit? And, you know, can you learn to be gritty? And it turns out the answer is yes. And the science, the studies, they show that the way to learn how to do hard things is by practicing doing hard things. Ha! Who would have figured that, huh? And I know that's always been true for me. I know running has always been that hard thing for many of us. And you learn how to do hard things by doing hard things. That's it. Pretty simple. Do something hard. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Trails 101. What's a trail? Now, before I start telling you about how to enjoy running trails, I think I had better answer the question, what the heck is a trail anyhow? I realize that some of the things I say and talk about when I discourse on trail running may not make sense unless you can put yourself in and appreciate the environment that I'm experiencing. My typical trail is an unpaved farm road that was cut into the forest over a hundred years ago. The road was cut without the assistance of surveyors and modern earth-moving equipment. These roads, come trails, follow the contour of the land. They meander along the tops of rocky ridges to avoid the ponds and swamps. They cut up and down rolling hills following the natural lines, and they end up at stream crossings, where the rivers are shallow for ease of fording, or at narrow points where a bridge of logs or rocks can be thrown across. In my trails here in New England, the forests have grown back and close densely and closely in on the trail. Wild rose bushes and raspberry canes lean into the trail, throwing exploratory vines into the gaps that tear at and garrot the inattentive runner. The trail surface is pine needles and packed mulch leaves. The old roads are three to four feet wide with two-wheel grooves straddling the centerline peak. Random large and small rocks push their way up through the wheel tracks, exposing obstacles of all shapes and sizes and distribution. These rocks are mostly half-exposed and rounded from the action of the glaciers. When it rains and during the spring melt, the depressed concavity of the old wheel tracks fill with puddles and mud. The roots of trees are exposed and run at crazy angles to the trail, spider-webbing away from the trees on the edges. The trees themselves are 40 to 50 years old and close in the trails completely with a dense canopy, 80 to 100 feet tall. On the forest floor, all manner of bushes and immature trees compete for the filtered light in a mad scramble of underbrush. Most of the woods I've run used to be 
farmer's fields. Old stone walls run in delineating patterns all around and cross the trails in places. These walls are not structured walls with mortar. They've been sitting unattended for over a hundred years and are basically long, straight rock piles. But they are wonderful. And that's what I mean when I say I went trail running. What do your trails look like? As it turns out, Several of the organizations that use the trails have rating systems. Typically, these rating systems are a 1 to 5 scale, with the 1 being easy and the 5 being hardest. And what they rate is the characteristics that make a trail difficult for hiking, running, or riding. So the first thing they rate is the surface. And this may be the most important for you. Some trails at the easiest end of the spectrum are paved like many of the converted rail trails. They're basically little roads in the woods. And the next level of difficulty is dirt roads, which are still quite forgiving of a surface. I would argue that a well-groomed and packed dirt surface is quite good for fast times. I qualified for Boston on a rail trail course just like that once. As you progress up the difficulty scale, you encounter various levels of rocks and roots and sand and mud and all manner of nasty, difficult surfaces. The second thing they rate on the trails is the width. When you hear us refer to single path, that means the trail is only wide enough for one individual at a time. The old farm roads I run would technically be double path. One of the common descriptions you'll hear is fire roads. And these are roads that were cut into the forest so that in the event of a forest fire, the equipment can get in and it forces the fire to have to jump the road, creating a bit of a barrier. And sometimes these are well-groomed dirt roads. Sometimes they are not so well-maintained. The ultra-distance trail races that I have ridden and run have a fairly large percentage of the course on dirt roads and fire roads with technical bits interspersed. And by the way, when we say technical, we just mean difficult. My point is that you shouldn't train with the expectation of all sorts of technical trails or all one type of trail. Typically, the longer races will have different sections of varying difficulty. The other characteristic of difficulty that they rate when describing trails is the elevation. How hilly is it? Very mountainous, steep uphill and steep downhill sections are more difficult than running on flat sections. The steep bits tend to have more challenging surface conditions due to washouts and slides and other conditions. Sometimes, trail rating systems will speak to the number of obstacles on a trail, like things you have to climb over or through, and some will consider the number and difficulty of water crossings. Those are fun trails. Finally, you might want to consider the exposure on the trails you are running. My trails are quite protected by the trees. I don't worry about the glaring sun of the desert or the whipping wind of a highland ridgeline. That's what we mean when we smile and we say the course is a bit technical. You do want to consider this when you're just starting out running trails. An example would be the 18-mile Wapak Trail Race that my club organizes, and I often run. 
If you only consider the distance, you might think this is a nice little 18-mile training run for my next marathon. But this course is quite difficult. It's mostly single path over broken rock fields, and it traverses four mountains twice. What does that mean for your training run? Take me as an example. I would run an 18-mile training run on the road in somewhere around two and a half hours. I'm an experienced trail runner. I know this course well. And it takes me over three and a half hours to complete this race. That's a full 50% longer at the same or harder effort level. So make sure you ease into it and know what you're getting into. A race like Wapak can beat the hell out of you if you're a novice, but it is also one of my favorite races because it's just a big ball of fun for me (laughs) to be out in the woods, flying down a rocky mountainside, swinging from the trees and jumping from rock to rock. It just doesn't get any better. And now for today's featured interview. All right, Jeff. So give me the 200 words on uh, who you are and what you do. Yeah, Zealus was born a couple of years ago, or maybe a little bit longer than that. I'm a runner, triathlete, and uh, all-round athlete, I guess. And I quit my corporate job, and I was looking for something to do. And I like beer, and I like um, an active lifestyle sport. And I was training one day, and I thought, why don't I just combine those two together? I've been to many, many races where they serve beer afterwards, and I've always thought that those beers, there's nothing particularly special about them. They're just beers. You know, many of them taste great, but there's nothing unique about them which makes them suitable for after a race. So combining these kind of elements together, I came up with the concept of Zealous. Right. So this is a craft beer company that is specifically designed to interface with people with active lifestyles. Yes. It's really two concepts. So one of the concepts is that, well, we looked at beer, or at least I looked at beer. I then brought in other people to help me out with better science mind than I have. Um, so we looked at beer and thought what we could do to beer to make it through ingredients and styles, what we could do to make it a more positive product. And mm-hmm. after a bit of research, you can actually do quite a lot. I mean, beer is actually a pretty good product after a race anyway, but there's things that you can do which make it even better. For example, wheat is a very refreshing... If you've ever drunk a a wheat beer, a Belgian wheat or a German wheat beer, they tend to taste more refreshing than a beer which is just made from barley grain. Okay. So all our beers, we only have one in the market right now, but we're about to launch a second one, have very high wheat content relative to um, our competitors. Another point was that a lot of the beers in the craft beer... Or more, which form part of the craft beer revolution tend to be higher in alcohol, and they, yeah, they just yeah. keep they keep they just keep creeping higher that. and higher. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah. So the style I, I, guide. No, I, I have some personal experience with that, and it's like you give me a nine percent alcohol IPA. I mean, I love it; it tastes great. But after running a marathon, that'll kill me. Yes, the style guide in an IPA is six to six point five percent. And it's almost like beer is becoming like wine. And yes, you can't drink too much of it. But most people like to have a few beers. They don't just want one beer. The first beer we have at Competitor IPA is a session beer. We don't advertise it as one, but it's 4.7%, which allows it to be, you know, you can drink more of it. We also looked at things like adjuncts and salts. So adjuncts in beer, there's lots actually. There's rice, for example, but you can also put in apricots, 
or you can put in kiwi or other fruits. And then when it comes to salt, a lot of brewers look at their water profiles and adjust them to, for various reasons, either for um, flavor reasons, like gypsum will enhance bitterness or processing aids or... Catalysts um, in the process, yeah. Yeah, catalysts in the process. There's a lot of reasons why people adjust. Or, or the other major one is to match the water profile of certain brewing cities around the world. So right. Guinness is, is a leading one. Guinness is originally um, brewed in Dublin and has a very distinct water profile. And not everyone, and this has become a little undermined recently, but typically people who try to brew a Guinness would try and match the water profile and then go from there. You can do that at the beginning or you can do it later in the process. So the water content or the what's in the water is super important to the end product, not only because it changes the taste, but it also changes the way that the fermentation process works, right? Yes, so, in particular the fermentation, yes, or the boil, but maybe most importantly the mashing process at the beginning when you're converting starch to sugars. You need to have the right level of pH and and certain other things. I mean, all, all salts affect pH. Well, not that's actually not quite accurate. Right. So what did you find was positive in the chemical contents of the water that would match this sort of uh, active beer? Well, so I mentioned Dublin. If you take somewhere like... Uh, so IPAs originated in Burton-on-Trent in the United Kingdom, which happens to be where I'm from. And Burton-on-Trent has very unusual water. Basically, uh, the water's from... I believe, comes from limestone cavities below the ground. So it has very high calcium levels, for example. So just by matching certain styles of beer, you can end up with products which have positive levels of some of these nutrients. Yeah. So when, when people brew a craft IPA here in the States, they will be looking to reverse engineer that water type, right? I don't think they do anymore. I think traditionally they would have done. There's a lot of sophistication around altering water profiles. And I think at this point, the American IPA has become quite divorced from the English IPA origins. So no, but you will see styles out there which uh, call themselves English IPAs. Right. And I think quite a lot of them. And if you, if you happen to be a home brewer, you know, you can buy salts in homebrew stores or on websites. And one of the mixes is called Burton Salt, for example. Huh. Yeah, well, um, I think uh, if I remember my home brewing lore, the IPA was originally made by the British with that extra hop to make it not go bad when they had to ship it all the way to India. Yes, right? on the ship. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, hops are very good um, at preventing the beer going, becoming perishable. They're a good disinfectant, I think. Exactly. So you're designing a product, right? That's the product. You're designing a product chemically and um, taste profile-wise for the athlete that's not going to knock them on their butt. And you're doing that specifically for an athlete or an active person? Well, when I first developed this, the goal was that anything we do would have to be either flavor neutral or flavor positive. So we really came at this from the, the flavor angle because ultimately beer drinkers want something which tastes good. But yes, we have a product which I think is suitable for for athletes. I think all beer is actually suitable for athletes. One Why? has to be a bit careful. <laughs> One has to be a bit careful about making health statements in regard to beer. Yeah. However, beer it's ninety two percent water or around there. It has carbohydrates, it has protein, and it has some of these other nutrients in it. That's just a that's really a matter of fact. All beers in the market have that. Some beers have more. As I was saying. If you choose to match the water profile of Burton-on-Trent, for example, 
then you would end up with a beer with higher levels of calcium in it. And then there's other examples of that for other brewing cities around the world. I've run a lot of events where they are sponsored by one of the big beer companies. And when you get to the end, they give you a drink ticket for one of these 90-calorie light beers. (laughs) They seem to think that the reason we're running marathons or doing what we do is that we're concerned about our weight. And a lot of times, I'll give those tickets away because I don't like light beer. I don't think it tastes like anything. I guess that's what you would call flavor neutral, right? It doesn't taste like anything. (laughs) Or or, Um, or maybe a little, yeah, maybe a little negative, but... uh... Yeah, so it seems to me like they're profiling the market, the same market, and saying, hey, those guys want light beer. They want weight loss beer. And you're profiling it and saying, no, this target market is people who care about what it tastes like. I mean, were you thinking about that when you put together this sort of business plan? Absolutely. I am surprised that there are no craft beers, or there are some, but not many, craft beers who really have gone after this market because of how large it is. And yes, I'm also not sure that marathon runners and endurance athletes are doing it for weight reasons. I mean, some people might be. Yeah, I don't think people are necessarily looking for a light beer. Light is uh, the TTB, which the agency would look after beer. There's actually a certain amount of calories you have to get under to be described as a light beer. I'm surprised there's no craft beer light beer either, and I don't find the two contradictory. Because <laughs> um, I think you can make flavorable beer at lower calories. Yeah, that goes hand in hand with the lower alcohol as well, right? That's, yeah, the way you—that's the really way you the achieve, profile. Yeah, the way you achieve a lower alcohol beer, at least as far as I know, is by reducing your what's called, described as the gravity in your beer, the original yep. gravity, or even yep. the final yep. gravity. Yep. But mainly the original gravity, and that's basically how much grain you put in there. So the higher the grain content in your beer then the higher the alcohol and normally the higher the calories. Although calories in beer can come from more than one source, you can get them from sugars or alcohol, but that gets a little bit more technical. But the short answer to your question is, I don't know why beer companies think that athletes don't like good tasting beer. Apart from the fact they think that some people or, or these companies or people just haven't realized the, the huge connection there is between beer and endurance sports running right. which is a hugely right. growing sport and cycling which slowed down a little bit but it's picking up again and triathlon i mean michelob ultra has done a really good job out there in promoting itself in this sort of sub-market i would like zealous to be the the craft beer version of michelob ultra if i can say that <laughs> i'm not sure yeah but. and the ultra guys i think they're targeting a younger population right if i look at their advertising they're targeting yeah. the uh, 20-somethings who are yeah. out doing the Spartan races and the, yeah. the mud races, right? They're not targeting the lifelong triathlete like you and I or a marathoner, right? So I think it's a different um, demographic. Yes, I don't know the answer. I mean, if you look at the stats on who drinks craft beer, I mean, socioeconomically, I mean, the average salaries of people who drink craft beer is higher than the general beer drinking population. Um, right. Equally... And another interesting uh, part of it is um, gender. In the general beer drinking population, the number of women is, I can't remember exactly what it is, but I think it's, uh, I don't like quoting statistics, but I think it's in the 30s somewhere, whereas in craft beer, it climbs well into the 40s, 40%. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the craft beer world, women make up a larger proportion of the drinkers, basically. 
<laughs> that would seem to align. I think the, the whole beer industry is changing quite dramatically, obviously, too. I mean, the Budweiser's and the Miller Lights of the world are declining in volume, and they're trying to find ways to replace that volume. Craft beer has certainly become very acceptable, and we, we've just started selling into stores and it's an unusual industry because people are very open to new products. I, I'm not sure that's true in other industries. And I, I think one of the reasons I got into beer was I did realize that the barriers to entry for new products is, is quite low, particularly versus, you know, if you started a toothpaste company or something, I think you, you'd be a bit more of a challenge. Right. You'd, have to get into, you'd have to sell right. a CBS. Yeah, the, the, the precedent has been set, right? So if I go down to my local supermarket, it's not just Budweiser and Miller anymore. It's Budweiser, Miller, and then a whole bunch of craft brew, right? Yes, a lot of um, options. Yeah. yeah. So is that because the distributors have picked it up? Because what most people don't know is this whole industry, the liquor industry in the United States, anyhow, is based on a distribution model, right? A distributor model, a yeah, tiered the, model. Yeah, it's a three-tiered system, which I believe is kind of a result of prohibition in the 1920s. So yes, and it's different in other countries. It's different in, in my home country of the United Kingdom, but you have manufacturers you have um, distributors and you have retailers. Right. Certain states, Massachusetts being one of them, allows you to operate at all levels, at least in some degree. Distributing beer is a challenge. There are a lot of accounts and you have to get to a lot of accounts. It's not like other industries, I think, sometimes. I come from the and, shoe yeah, industry and, personally and yeah. there aren't that many accounts and you have to make sure you get into those ones which are really important. In beer, there's if you want to sell your goods, there's a lot of options for you. Um, right, unless you hook up with one of the big distributors, and of course, then you're given up control, you're given, there's cost to that, right? We currently self-distribute. We have a, a license which allows us to do that. And one of the reasons we did that, well, the, the initial reason was so that we could have a good relationship with our accounts and thus the consumer, because I think we have a, a unique proposition, and handing that off to a distributor, I think, would undermine it at least yeah. initially. Once you've got your message out, I think it's less important, but initially I think that's important. What I've also learned while we've been on our journey is that um, accounts, as I said, that was a really good decision for us because where there are distributors, they can tend to carry a lot of craft beer and they come along with, I don't know how many brands, and you're just one of their brands. So even if they, yeah, yeah. you know, like you your being beer, how... Yeah, you being successful in your product market fit is not at the top of their agenda, right? They're no, it's top not. of their agenda no. is getting the best mix to make the most money and the most volume. Yes, right. They make their money through volume. Yes. Right. No, I called over to my local craft beer store, which there's an actual chain in Massachusetts. You're located in Massachusetts now, right, Jeff? Yes. You guys are down yes. in Medfield. We're based yeah. in Medfield near Boston. Yes. So do you have an actual um, outlet down there where people can belly up to the bar and get a sample, or is that just your production? From our facility, we currently cannot sell to the public. So okay. we are selling through third parties, um, meaning mostly liquor stores, wine and spirit stores, and soon to be uh, more bars. You can yeah. buy the product in Medfield because we sell to Palumbo's. We're spreading out. You can look at our website now. We are now spreading we have quite a few accounts at this point. I don't know the exact number, but maybe approaching yeah, so, 20. Yeah, like I said, I tried to get some because I was going to try it, and they don't have it at the craft beer cellar, which is a chain in Massachusetts. We are selling to the craft beer cellar in Newtonville. Right, um, so that's a little bit south of me. I'm up in uh, the one I go to is in Westford. Okay. So, yes, But we, anyhow, so, so are you finding an uptake in this marketing of going for the active or the healthy person? Have you noticed any pull, any product market fit in this approach? What I can say is that 
people react very positively to two things, the beer itself and the concept. So mm -hmm. if you describe the concept to them, the reaction is positive. And most people say, why is no one else doing this? So. Right. Is there a way you could double down on that and configure some sort of, take the energy drink route, right? Where you're configuring some sort of adjunct like beets or like you said, apricot, some sort of adjunct that makes it overtly healthy or overt. Yeah, I know you can't say it's healthy, but you know <laughs> no. you can imply, which is what all these products do, right? That it's healthy. And if you could get that uptake from, for example, the Ironman community, yes. those guys will pay anything and buy anything if they think it'll make them faster. <laughs> well, they put in a lot of work, right? So yeah, <laughs> anything which gives them wings, right? Yeah, that's what, exactly. That's why we have a winged god as our um, so Zealous, our, our logo, and it's the winged god of contest and um, emulation and zeal. And it also happens to be Nike's brother. I'm not sure I can say that either, but Nike, as in the god of victory, it's his brother. Right, right. No, well, there you go. I didn't pick up on that. I just thought I was pronouncing it zealous, and it just seemed like a good fit for athletes. Yes, it, the word zealous comes from the god zealous. Yeah, there um, you go. But it's like many brand names. People will pronounce them how they choose, like Adidas or Adidas or Nike or Nike. Right, just right. the way it is. Right. Um, so going back you... to your question about adjuncts, <laughs> the thing is with beer, right? So beer has high levels of potassium in it, mainly because it's got because grains have high levels of potassium in it. There are mm -hmm. other fruits which have large amount of potassium in it. Apricot, for example, has high levels of potassium. Not many people know that, I think. There are others, too. Kiwis tend to have high levels of potassium. Bananas, which people usually talk about, I don't think banana and beer really goes that well. No. Beets. I haven't tried brewing with beets, but it's a possibility. Yeah, and, um, and some of those fruits you mentioned have other stuff like vitamin C and vitamin E. There would be other yeah. vitamins or vitamins, as you say, in those which you could tout as positive, right? I mean, if you're talking about yeah. post-workout, it's got to be something that you need in your system, right? And the potassium yeah. is typically a pre-workout or a during-workout, which, hey, I know people who drink during their workouts, but most people don't. <laughs> I actually tried doing a beer run last year, and um, what was it, the year before? I, I have to admit, I didn't particularly enjoy the experience, although they are becoming more popular. Yeah, and amazingly quick. They're under five-minute miles now, right? The person, both the females Yeah, they're the male. quite ridiculous. Yeah, just the fact they can run that fast at all. Yeah. But and potassium, my understanding with potassium is actually quite good for replenishing um, after exercise, too. Yeah. Um, okay. For hydration. Okay. Anyway, um, yeah. there are lots of things you can do to be like, you can actually increase the level of protein in your beer via um, using flaked grains if you chose to. There are quite a few things you can do to beer to alter some of those levels. How much you can tell people what you're doing is another subject. Yeah. So when I was thinking about this, like I said, it took me back to some of the uh, archaeology I've seen recently around beer, right? So beer has been around for at least 5,000 years, right? The Babylonians, yeah. the Sumerians, they've been drinking beer. And they found yeah. some of those recipes. It's different than the beer we have now because it's typically much lower alcohol content. It was more like food than yes. beer or recreational drink, an alcoholic drink. It was more like food. So it was like a low alcohol sort of porridge drink, maybe like right. a, an Ovaltine for these guys <laughs> that was a main part of their food diet, right? Yes. 
so that's how they get their energy. So it would seem that you could move it more sort of back in that direction, the original purpose of beer, right? The big advantage of beer over water is that water can get infected. And people used to, as far as I understand, there are no known pathogens in beer. Water can become infected and make you sick. Beer generally does not. And yes, I don't know about going as far back as you mentioned there, but in England, in the Middle Ages, children used to drink it. Right. Because again, it was safer than, than water. There's a lot of history in beer. You, you mentioned the hops and the disinfecting or the, the reason why IPAs appeared on the market. Milk stouts are kind of an interesting one to me too. They were introduced in the UK in the, I think, the late 19th century, late 1800s. And they were for pregnant women because mm. of they used to add milk to the products, but in reality, what they're adding, and now if you make a, a milk stout, you don't add milk, you just add the sugar from milk, which is lactose. But yes, there's a there's definitely a long history of beer and the different purposes it's been right. brewed for, I guess. Right. What's success for you and your company over the next uh, three to five years look like? <laughs> I would like to be able to establish as a profitable business. Beyond mm -hmm. that, I am pretty open. But, <laughs> but you've got to get to that profitable stage so that you can continue in business. So right. you have to There's sell all enough product. All, that, that's the end of the day, all this fun stuff that you can do in a startup, but you've got to make money, right? Or else yes, you can't keep the lights on. Nobody gets paid. There's not much No, choice. I get it. Yeah. Yeah, I get I mean, it. There, there is another aspect to that too. I, I do. I am interested. I really, what I would do. I also want to do here is, is create a community between um, right. these athletes and our product. Because yeah. if we can do that, we can hopefully become the go-to product for after races. Like if right. you know someone has a race, it's like, well, what should we serve after? It's well, we should serve seedless, um, right. and there'd be a reason right. to do that. Um, yeah, so I mean, that that it, would be success too. Yeah, I mean, it's good market positioning, and I would think that if you wanted to exit at some point, that's a good market positioning to facilitate a, an exit as well to some other company that has products that are next to it in that segment. So, yeah, I'm yeah. with you. So, um, <laughs> all right, I'm going to move you uh, towards the exit here, Jeff. How can people find this stuff? What's the best way? Go to your website and look for retailers? We have on our website a, a button which you can click which says stockist on it. And we are attempting to keep that updated. And um, we're also going to put on Facebook a list of stockists too. But the short answer is, in the, our goal is to hit the Boston and Metro West areas uh, to Boston. That's our target audience initially, and then spread out from there. It just takes time to get to all these accounts, get them sold in, get them product, et cetera. Sure. Sure. Um, yep. Understood. Yep. All right. Um, we also, All right. You can also sign up to races that we sponsor, and you can drink it afterwards. That's another option. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll have to uh, see if we can do something with uh, – well, I'm not the race director. I was the race director for 10 years for the Groton Road race up here in my okay. neck of the woods. Um, we get uh, about 2,500 people um, locally. Good. About but unfortunately, we're our home base for the race is in a school, so uh, <laughs> we can't uh, can't be drinking. But maybe we can work something out. All right, man, I'm gonna let you go. Let's get back to brewing right. beer. All right, thank Thanks you very for talking. much. Have a, have All a right. good day. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. <laughs>
grit, practice, and flow. I have read my way through Angela Duckworth's Grit, and it's easy to read, and it's clear. Grit synthesizes many of the other concepts that I have read, and I think that's why I find it so easy to read. It is like a unifying theorem that pulls together concepts from other books that I've read, even though that's probably not her intent. In the chapter on practice, Ms. Duckworth explains exactly what type of practice creates successful people and mastery in their space. She also connects the dots back to the flow research of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi that was so compellingly laid out in The Rise of Superman by Steve Kotler. It seems obvious that successful people, whether athletes or artists or business people, practice more. Of course they do. The research of Dr. Anders Ericsson's, especially since Malcolm Gladwell cited it in Outliers, has become almost a poor Richard's maxim. It takes 10,000 hours in 10 years to achieve mastery in any pursuit, is what he said. The difference is that it is a very specific type of practice that makes the difference. It isn't just showing up and doing the same thing over and over again. Rote repetition is just as likely to result in mediocrity as in excellence. The key is deliberate practice. And the hallmarks of deliberate practice from the grit book are having a clearly defined set of stretch goals for that area of practice. You need to be able to measure and quantify improvements in your practice for the positive feedback loop of practice to be effective. Secondly, full concentration and effort. This type of practice is not fun practice. This is practice to find and isolate the flaws in your approach so you can get better. It's hard, focused work. Thirdly, it's immediate and informative feedback. This is where good coaching helps, having someone to immediately assess your mistakes so you can internalize the corrections and practice them. That accelerates the improvement. And finally, repetition with reflection and refinement. That's the practice part. So people who are good at deliberate practice tend to spend alone time on this practice. They focus on their weaknesses. They work on fine-tuning. They are quite interested in what they are doing wrong so they can fold that immediate feedback into their practice. So how does this relate to the flow state? Well, this practice itself is rarely a flow state. Since deliberate practice is quite mindful and hard work, it is not by definition flow. The deliberate practice enables flow. Practice is the behavior that enables flow the experience. When the athlete or artist or executive drops into that flow state during a performance, it is because they have done their deliberate practice. And since this deliberate practice focuses on isolating mistakes and getting that improvement feedback, it connects also back to the concepts in Dr. Carol Dweck's Mindset book. If you remember, in Mindset, Dr. Dweck shows how a growth mindset, 
embraces challenge and failure as a gift to be used to improve, whereas a fixed mindset doesn't like to fail because it reveals that they are not the smartest person in the room. You can't execute deliberate practice with a fixed mindset. You need a growth mindset to practice deliberately, to look for those incremental weaknesses over and over again and use that feedback in your practice towards mastery. This is the process, the habit and practice of emotion-free mistakes that allows you to get better. Greedy people practice a lot, but they practice deliberately with a growth mindset. This volume of high-quality practice creates opportunities for flow in their performances. And it comes back to practice and quality of practice. How much deliberate practice do you do in your life, in your work? The successful among us practice deliberately daily as part of their routines and situationally as the need arises. The successful among us have established deliberate practice practice habits. And this ties into the work of Charles Duhigg, The Power of Habit. Understanding how to engineer effective habits and keystone habits will help you wire in your deliberate practice. Habits enable daily practice. Deliberate practice with a growth mindset enables mastery and performances that are out of this world flow states. These are all related and complementary concepts. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my long-suffering friend, since it was St. Paddy's Day yesterday, maybe you have sipped that nice local craft IPA, maybe from Zealous Breweries, along to the finish of episode 4-361 of the Run Run Live podcast. Apologies, got started late this week, been super busy. Of course, everybody's busy, right? So that's no excuse. But I got to put the podcast together last night and uh, was missing a file. And I wasn't in a position where I could record that one piece. I was missing this outro. I was missing it. Yeah. So I told you before, I have not been racing this spring. Racing. Just hitting the training that the coach has been thrown over the wall. Boston is the second Monday in April. We're about a month out now. And uh, hey, we'll see what that brings. The interesting thing is that I have been hitting paces on these tempo runs that I haven't seen since 2011. Let me back up. For those of you who might not have been listening to this podcast for the last 10 years, (laughs) and they're all out there on my website, runrunlib.com, After the marathon in 2011, way back in 2011, I pulled up lame with a terrible case of plantar fasciitis that I just could not shake, and I basically stopped running for 18 months. I did a lot of biking, a lot of swimming, but I stopped racing marathons almost entirely. And I was just starting to train again in 2013, and we had a bit of a challenging year that year. Some yahoos decided to blow up the marathon. Uh, My dad died of cancer, and to be honest, the whole year sort of knocked me sideways a bit. So I did this Forrest Gump routine where I ran a marathon a month from the Boston Marathon in 2013 to the Boston Marathon in 2014, including some notables like the Marine Corps and 
New York City and and one I just made up myself. (laughs) And I think I may have overshot a bit because the following season, that summer and fall, I came down with this heart problem called exercise-induced AFib. And that laid me low for another year until I went and got it fixed in the spring of 2015. And then, being the stubborn guy that I am, I started training again. But I had lost a a solid 30 seconds a mile off the marathon times that I had been putting in before uh, to all this foolishness and these trials and tribulations. So I settled into a new normal and kept having adventures. See, now you're up to speed. You can get out of the Wayback Machine. Here we are, 2017. And I'm training for my 19th Boston Marathon. And guess what? I'm seeing paces that seem to indicate that I've managed to claw back eh, 15 seconds of that 30 seconds I lost. So I'll give you an example. I was on the treadmill this week doing a 11-mile step-up run. And towards the end, I had to put in four miles at a zone four pace. And my pace was to get into zone four, I had to crank it up to like low seven, 708 to 718. And that's towards the end of this run for four miles. So it looks like I have my base back, my, you know, that that aerobic fitness or in layman's term, that engine. And I've gotten a bit of the the pacing back as well. I don't have any real speed, but I do have some solid tempo paces. So hopefully as you raised your green-tinted Guinness last night, you were thinking about me and saying prayers for me and praying for good weather on Patriot's Day and praying that I'll be graced with the common sense not to attack the course like I did last year (laughs) and praying that I will Find that courage to close those awful last six miles to Boylston Street. And you'd think that after all these years, it would cease to scare me. But the thought of racing Boston still fills me with an awful dread. Because I know what it is capable of, and I've been beaten more times than I have won. But also, pause to think about the lessons. Think about the grit that you need to have to hang in there and keep pushing through five years of challenge And listen, there's no end point. I do this because I need to do it. It's my passion in the true Latin sense. But the point is, there's nothing that can beat you unless you let it beat you. All it takes is grit. So I was down in Dallas last week, and I came back from my early morning run, and I was getting some coffee in the little hotel breakfast buffet. And it was just me, one other lady guest, And the lady working the the buffet, you know, one of those self-service kind of areas like they have in hotels, the breakfast buffet. So the other lady guest who was there with me stops the server who was, you know, the server going about her server business, cleaning and checking the food and stuff. And I'm thinking, whoop, here we go. She's going to whine about the waffles being too salty or something. But no. She stops the server and she says with a big smile, I just wanted to let you know how great this breakfast is, how great a job you folks are doing with this. It's the best I've ever seen. I just had to let you know how great a job you're doing. And that server walked away with the biggest smile, ear to ear. So remember, don't be stingy with your gifts. You can make a difference. 
and I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. That's weird. And I will remind you that the Run Run Live podcast is ad-free and listener-supported. What does that mean? It means that you don't have to listen to yet another Blue Apron or HelloFresh ad. As a matter of fact, stop being lazy and go shop for your own food. (laughs) But uh, we do have a membership option where you can become a member. And as a special thank you, you will get access to members-only audio. I'll also give you a quick reminder that I am raising money for Team Hoyt for my 2017 Boston Marathon, and the links are in the show notes. I'm doing well. I had a good push last week, a couple weeks ago, so I'm doing well, but I can always do better. They do good work. Let's support them. All right? All right. Okay. I'm recording, all right? I hope I'm recording. Looks like I'm recording. Ah, recording, recording, recording. Uh, Where's that trail running post? (coughs) Trail running. 101. Trail running. Search post. Trail running. Search for a post. There it is. Come on. You can do it. Trail running. Trails 101. Trails 101. That is it. Come on, you can do it. Here we go. All right.